You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstance of Suffering. In this series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we learn how to press into the source of true joy, citizenship in heaven through our union with Christ. Now let's hear the word of the Lord. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Haven't said that in a minute. Oh, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Wow. Hey, hello, hello, hello. This is, you guys have no idea how weird it was doing this whole deal in an empty room. Uh, it was probably weird for you guys at home, and for those of you who are still at home, it was probably weird. But boy, uh, I'm glad I get to see faces and not just stare at the little square back there. Though, hey, everybody at home, good to see you. Hello, my children. Um, my name is Jonah, and I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, so encouraged to see you all. Um, yeah, it's a strange Sunday because uh, I can remember one of the first sermons I preached when all of the, um, the lockdown started happening. I talked about how exciting it would be, and we we're going to have this big potluck when we come back, and we're going to have the drums out and have this huge party, and it's like, we're back, but we don't we're not quite back yet, and we're slowly easing in, and I think there's wisdom in that, but it's just this strange mix of loss and excitement all happening at the same time. Um, so here we are, and I wish that we had this great like welcome back sermon for everybody, but uh, our church, we, we preach through the Bible most of the time. We just pick a book, and we run at it, and... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I love you guys. I'm really happy that you're here, but this might be a tough one today uh, because life is hard and we are living in wild times. Uh, these past months, we've been confronted with the challenge of competing allegiances. And we face this tension in, in small ways, especially where we are geographically. Y'all ever see the House Divided stickers? And that's like you see somebody with a bumper sticker and it's got UK slash U of L on one side or IU slash Purdue on one side. You know, where it's like, I'm, I'm, some of you people are probably married to Pittsburgh Steeler fans, which y'all, I've prayed to the Lord. You can send me, go where you go, I will go where you send me, anywhere but Pittsburgh, Lord, because it's filled with Steeler fans. I can't imagine being married to a Steelers fan. But you can be a Christian, you can be a Christian and be a Steelers fan, okay? Just, I'm just saying. We face these kinds of small little tensions all of the time. And I'm guessing 
particularly over these last few months, you felt how the tension of competing allegiances can become much more poignant and painful than simply your favorite college team. Uh, sometimes the tension that we feel of competing allegiances is very direct. Sometimes it's very indirect. Uh, I remember, some of you may know, my wife and I are renovating a house. We're pretty sure it's not going to fall down at this point. We weren't sure for a while. We're pretty sure at this point it's not going to fall down. Uh, but when you're doing large-scale house projects, you find yourself at the Home Depot a lot. And you know, back when all of this started, I remember walking into Home Depot, and I... Th- I think I was the only person there without a mask on, and I felt like I was supposed to be ringing a plague bell or something like that, the way everybody was looking at me, and I felt so out of place. And then I went to Home Depot on Wednesday, and I was the only one with a mask on there. And everybody's looking at me like, come on, COVID was so February, man. Like, there's other things. There's other things. You know, so you you can feel that kind of judgment from both sides. Maybe you've had a conversation with a family member who thinks systemic racism is not real. And you're scared to tell them you just left protesting systemic racism. Maybe you've been to one of those protests and you've seen someone holding a sign that says, disband the police. And you think of all of the, you know, the people here in this church that are wonderful police officers and firefighters. Which side do I go on here? Many voices on all sides are whispering to us these days that that most fearful question, whose side are you on? It's not always so obvious as those examples either. Uh, So to my friends on the left, thankful you're here. My blue friends, my Democrats, if you're like, there's Democrats here? Yeah, about half of you people, right? So get ready. So to my blue friends, perhaps you were appalled by the president of the United States clearing a crowd of peaceful protesters so he could take a picture of himself awkwardly holding a Bible in front of a church he does not attend. Perhaps you were, I would argue, rightfully appalled by that picture and that photo opportunity. Were you also appalled by the Democrats wearing kente cloths for a photo opportunity a few days after? And if you don't know what kente cloths are, take a posture of curiosity and go figure that out. It's the sacred royal robes of African kings and queens. To my friends on the right, Were you, because I know you were mad at the picture that the the Democrats took, just like I know the people on the left were mad at the people, the picture that the president took. So to my friends on the right, were you as appalled by the picture of our president as you were of the picture of the Democrats? And if it's a, I just, I thank God that we have those two pictures that happened in such a short period of time, not because I'm glad of what it took to get those pictures or what those pictures represented, but because right in our face, we have evidence that both sides are manipulating us, trying to woo us to come to their side. They are playing us, both sides, and they are whispering, don't you think you'd like it on my side better? Don't you think we are the good guys? And what complicates all of this manipulation and these competing allegiances is that we have people on every side of those issues here now. Thanks be to God, here now in this room, 
but also just here now in our church, gathering online, watching from where they are. Allegiance speaks to the issue of our deepest loyalties. And we live in a world where multiple factions are competing for our allegiance. And where we choose to place our allegiance will either fill our life with confidence and joy or with despair and division. Philippians 1, chapter chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, it's the thesis statement of the whole book of Philippians. This is the core theme, and it speaks to our allegiances. Paul begins in an emphatic way. So in verse 27, he starts off, it's one word in the original language. It says, above all, we could translate this, the one thing. Paul is saying, after everything I've said in my introduction, everything I've said about myself, about my sufferings, about my circumstances, the one thing I want you to know, the one thing above everything else, this is the core message I want you to hear. And he says it's this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. If you read Philippians 1, 1 through 26 closely, you'll notice that Paul uses, uh, where are my teachers? First person indicative. He says, I do. You know, he's, he's being self-reflective here. He's offering commentary on his own life. And here in verse 27, he switches to second person imperative, which means he, said, he went from saying, I do, to now you must. He's saying, these are commands. This isn't advice. These aren't tips for how to make your best life now or something like that. He is saying, you must do this. And the command is, above all else, is to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And this is a word that citizens word meant a lot to the church in Philippi. It was normally used as a special word used to refer to their Roman citizenship. And there were all kinds of perks of being a Roman, citizen of the most powerful empire in the world. It was a point of pride and power to be a part of the Roman Empire. And Philippi was a strategic city. So there was all kinds of, you know, they had, it was a badge of honor to say, I'm a Philippian. And that, that meant a lot to them. Paul's core invitation to them is to see themselves as more than Roman. You are something greater than Roman. And you must live above all else as though that's true. You must live that you are something greater than a Roman. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying your greatest allegiance is owed to a king and a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Above all, who are you? You are a citizen of heaven. And the invitation is for our lives to live as though that is the place of our deepest allegiance. So what does that look like? It's one of those great Christian phrases, right? You're a citizen of heaven. Well, He continues through 27 through 30, giving us pictures of what this looks like. And it's it's hard to feel Paul's passion here in English. Uh, What 27 through 30 is one long sentence. So imagine Paul, we'll get into some of this more as the series goes on. He's physically chained to another human being in his prison cell. And what follows here is one long sentence. There's no punctuation. So imagine Paul, he's so fired up, he's pacing around and he goes on this long rambling sentence. And Paul does this often in his writings, which can make it complicated to translate because it's just one, he gets fired up and just starts grasping for words and you can feel his passion here. 
He feels this deeply, and it is an impassioned plea to his friends. Live a life worthy of the gospel by, and he continues in verse 27, by standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news, which is the gospel. This is an appeal to unity, not uniformity. Those are similar sounding words that mean something very, very different. Unity is solidarity around a shared mission. Think about having your arms locked with people and you're all marching in the same direction. Unity is solidarity around a shared mission. Uniformity is a demand that we all think exactly alike on everything. Uniformity is saying we're all straight ticket. You just, we all have to believe the same thing and we're going to police each other to make sure we think the same thing, believe the same thing, act the same way. Uniformity, here's another way to put it. Uniformity says you're either red or you're blue. Unity makes room for purple. You get what I mean? When, when there's unity, when there's a mission that's greater than our own individual interests, there's room for us to think differently on some things. So citizens of heaven stand together for one purpose, living and proclaiming the gospel. And that's our, that's our mission here. If you've ever noticed, we have a mission statement. It's in the bathroom, which I know you haven't used our bathrooms in several months. It's, we got it on the board, I think. We got it on the board, on the screen. What do we call this? I haven't looked back on this in a long time. It should be up there, and if not, I'll just read it to you. Here's our mission. It's, it's spicy. Reach people with the gospel. Build them up as the church. Send them out into the world. So we are an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. We reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. We learn to embody that in such a way that we live as citizens of heaven. And then we send people to live as salt and light in a dark and broken world. If you're a member here, if you've even just gone through the member process, notice we don't ask you all to believe the same thing. There's a couple of big things we ask you to believe. And on the places where you don't agree with where we as the church are on certain issues, we just ask you not to be divisive for the sake of our divine mission, not for the sake of groupthink, not for the sake of uniformity, but that each one of us, by committing to a local church, by becoming Christians, are enlisting ourselves into a story that is far greater than any of our individual preferences or interests. It's the story of the kingdom of God, of light pushing back darkness. Our citizenship is based on the sinless life of Jesus, his death in our place, his resurrection from the dead. The reality of the gospel is what purchased our unity, and it is the source of our mission. Something greater than us has brought us together, and something greater than us is sending us out. And this is part of the reason why Paul issues a bit of a warning here. He says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. In verse 28, every, every mission has opposition. But citizens of heaven, though, he's, he's suggesting here that we have power to stand. Nobody likes being disliked. Anybody like being, someone being mad at you? <laughs> like, it's not a fun experience. Anybody get really pumped up to go have a hard conflict conversation? He's saying part of the privilege of your citizenship is you have power to stand even when there's opposition, even when enemies attack you. We know that we're passing through this life on our way to our ultimate home. Uh, or as the song tells us, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. If I know that I'm held safe by the strong arm of Jesus, 
I don't need to be so worried about people being mad at me. I know this is temporary, and I know I will one day be in eternal dwelling. We need not be intimidated by our enemies, by our opposition, because of the power of the gospel. Our citizenship is based on blood, just not our blood. It's the blood of Jesus that covers us, that unites us, and that holds us safe. We're saved, secured, held by the blood of Jesus. So you don't have to be intimidated. And this is what he says about the attacks of those enemies. It's a completely new way of looking at it. He says, you've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We don't have to be intimidated by the voices that call for our allegiance, and we can count it a privilege when we suffer because we are standing. When our allegiance is to King Jesus, you will not fit neatly into any earthly box. You will not be easy to define or label. His ways are higher than our ways, and he invites us into a new way. One where we are so delighted by the beauty of our King so filled with patient hope for the life to come that we can stand in faith, we can suffer well, and we can follow the narrow path of Jesus. And I think part of the reason Paul talks about opposition so much is because he knows how confusing the Christian life will look to those outside of the church. And you'll notice he also talks about division that can happen within the church. Not all of our enemies will be from outside of the church. Many will be within. Many will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Many will be in a different spot, or they'll have competing allegiances. He repeatedly will stress division from within as one of the greatest threats to our mission. And since the Lord has blessed me with a ministry of discomfort, I need, I need to press on all of us here a little bit. So that, was all, that was basically a 13-minute introduction for what I think Philippians is, is really saying for us here. Um, I have never felt the potential for division in our church as much as I feel it right now. And I wish I could say it was a result of all of these voices outside imposing something on us in here. And I want to be clear that I think all of us are complicit all of us need to grow. So including me right now, all of us can spend some time being uncomfortable together. We can experience the unity of discomfort shared amongst us. So when our allegiance shifts to an earthly nation, we risk becoming enslaved by ideology. Uh, you can become blind to any other perspective. If your side is never wrong, if you can never hear a disagreement without growing defensive and argumentative, those are good indications you have become enslaved to an ideology, uh, a worldly philosophy. Here's what this looks like. I got to shake it off, y'all. I'm so uncomfortable right now. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Brittany. Thanks. Okay. Our church is fundamentally pro-life. Pro-life. And this plays out everywhere. It's why we planted beautiful flowers in this renovated park. And we didn't just like throw down gravel. Like, because we think flowers are beautiful and they matter to God. It's why 
it's why we have so much, I mean, you guys, I don't know if you're reading our People of Sojourn New Albany Facebook page, it's stunning how much food has been distributed to our neighborhood from that little tiny box at the corner of our street. Uh, it's why we partner with an organization that believes a little bit differently than we do to provide healthy food here in this food desert. It's why we give school supplies to the local schools, to children. It's why we've retooled Summer Academy to continue providing tutoring and education support for folks in our neighborhood. On and on we could go. We love all that God has made. We are staunchly pro-life. Because we are pro-life, all of it, we are comfortable with statements like, Black Lives Matter. And de- thanks. And it's possible to believe in that statement without believing in everything that the organization that has that name stands for. But you sh- that should be such like a softball kind of statement to make. It is the bare minimum of what anybody who would call themselves pro-life should be able to agree with, the content of that statement. From pre-colonial days until today, our country has not affirmed that statement, both in our laws and our systems, as well as just in our culture. And in my entire time, here comes my discomfort. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens tomorrow. In my, I've been on staff at a church, several churches, for like 15 or 16 years at this point. And in my time at, at working in the church, No one has ever been more angry with me than my politically conservative brothers and sisters. No one has ever been more slanderous, leveled more accusations against my character or to the elders I was a part of as a whole or the mission of our church. I mean, I mean, nothing I've experienced has compared to the anger and vitriol I have experienced from conservative Christians and I'm so uncomfortable saying this, but I'm one of you guys. Nothing has made that group angrier than being pro-life for people who look differently than we do. So for those four minutes, I'll get some emails from my blue brothers and sisters saying, you said it. I'm so thankful you said Black Lives Matter. And from my red brothers and sisters, I'll get angry emails or or more likely passive-aggressive social media posts. So there's my red discomfort. Again, because we are fundamentally pro-life, we also make it clear that we are against abortion. We love the most vulnerable, the most voiceless, and we are working hard to end abortion in our lifetime. Our church gives money, gives time, gives words, gives entire Sundays of the year to that heartbreaking issue. And, you know, maybe when we do on Sanctity of Life Sunday, the Reds email me and they're like, amen, brother. We got to get those guys out. Like, amen. You know, they've got my back then. And then my blue brothers and sisters will say, I'm not sure this is the church for me. And when when we're called to something greater, you have to see that neither abortion nor racial reconciliation are political issues. They are biblical, theological issues. 
And because our allegiance in this church is to King Jesus, we will look red to some and we will look blue to others. In the last month, I wish I felt comfortable lying to you guys because then I could make up stories. But like, this is true. In the last month, I have been told that Sojourn Church is the most progressive liberal church in the entire Southern Baptist Convention. And that was not an encouragement. Right? That wasn't like a rah-rah. That was them saying, don't trust those guys, don't follow those guys. They are the most liberal, progressive church in the whole convention. And then, because my wife and I are cheap and we're buying all these house supplies off a of Facebook marketplace, I found myself talking with a staff member of literally Louisville's most liberal, progressive church. And I was thanking him for his ministry to the homeless and the hungry. He was telling me about what he did. And I kid you not, when he found out that I worked at Sojourn Church in the middle, the middle of our conversation in his driveway, he said, I know what you're about. Turned his back and walked away from me in the middle of the conversation. Too liberal for one, too conservative for the other. And with, with great humility and gratitude, to me, that looks like the way of Christ. This is the tension of having your first allegiance be to a king and a kingdom. And we have to be honest that this is very, very difficult, and none of us have this figured out perfectly. Allegiances are difficult to change, so we must have the courage to be honest with ourselves, which the gospel provides us that courage. If we are saved by grace, if we are citizens of heaven based on the blood of Jesus and not our own blood, we are allowed to be honest when we are wrong. So listen, you have to see the inconsistency of saying my body, my choice, when that results in you robbing a body of their choice. If you look at systemic racism in our country and say it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. We just need to preach the gospel. We preached the gospel through Jim Crow. And you have to ask yourself why we would never say that about abortion. We would never say abortion is a murder problem. It's not a murder problem, it's a sin problem. We just need to preach the gospel. We, we would never say just preach the gospel to all of these other horrors in our country. Paul is saying, your allegiance shows up in how you live, not how you talk, not how you even think in some ways. It's part of it. But he's saying living as citizens of heaven is more than words. It's more than preaching the gospel because the gospel is good news that all things are being made new again. It's like, are you saying we don't preach the gospel anymore? Absolutely not. In fact, we're going to do it multiple times every Sunday at the very least, right? Like, I'm not at all saying abandon the words, but Paul is saying the soil by which the gospel grows is your actual life. It's not just your thoughts or your words. So for us as a church, like, I appeal to you, my brothers and my sisters, to, to fight to maintain our unity, we need the gospel to be true for us. Only when we know we are forgiven by Christ, adopted through Christ, our inheritance is secured by Christ, our souls filled with the presence of Christ, only when that is real can we look ourselves in the mirror, face all of our internal contradictions, admit our own blindness, and repent. 
The good news is that we are saved and made new in Christ. And that produces a new way of living in us, a new way of being human. Paul concludes the section in verse 30 by saying, we are in this struggle together. This is not conceptual. This is, this is very, very, very real. We are unified together. I mean, I'm trying to appeal to you to come into a greater story than maybe the one you're in right now so that we can, we can find room for people who look different, who think different, and believe different. There's a couple of big things we're going to agree on. And then we can have grace for all of the other little side things. And I don't mean that to be diminishing of them or belittling of them. There can be really significant things we disagree on. I'm pleading with us, as part of being citizens of heaven, what I think some of that looks like to live as part of a greater mission is to become a people who are more curious and generous with one another. Maybe a little bit practically. Jesus gave his blood to make us one, so let's not let Facebook rob us of what Jesus has given to us. Let the reader understand. We had, a, we had a very gracious, wonderful email from someone recently, and they're like, oh, I don't really get on Facebook. I didn't know all that was going on. And I was like, you are the most blessed. <laughs> you know? So listen, I'm on Facebook. Facebook is a great place to post pictures. It's a great place to invite people to an event. It's a great place to share a reflection that you're having. Um, it's a terrible place to disagree with somebody. It's a terrible place to try to sort through complex, nuanced issues. It's too easy to make someone else your enemy on social media. It's too easy to assume the worst about somebody when they're not right in front of you because it's so easy to reduce their humanness, their status as an image bearer of God. When they're just on a screen, it's too easy to reduce all they are as a person to just words on a screen. It's too easy to treat someone like an enemy when the word says they are your family. So we can learn to disagree better. That will require us to be part of a greater mission, to not be sitting back idle, to be pursuing building the kingdom of God. But what would a, what would a curious posture with one another look like? It might mean assuming that somebody knows something that you don't know. It might mean when someone disagrees with you, you assume they're still a Christian. It might mean that, that you assume you're family with them. And I would just say, if you're the kind of person that deals with conflict over Facebook or Twitter or text messages, I would remind you, you know that doesn't work. Right? You ever had a long argument over text and it just made everything worse? Digital conflict does not work. I'm going to say it one more time. Digital conflict does not work. And what's more, remember how Paul said here that our unity together would prove to the world that we are God's children. It would prove to the world that we are saved. Do you realize everybody is watching us disagree with one another? So I'm not saying don't have disagreeing thoughts. I'm not saying... Let's be uniform in our opinions. I'm just saying, if you want to disagree with somebody, let's do it in person. Sit down with them. Or at the very least, call them over the phone. And let's learn to be charitable and gracious, generous. 
Let's be a church that has our arms locked together, sealed tight by the blood of Jesus, moving forward together in unity as we build the kingdom of God. We are not enemies. We are family. We are not perfect, but we are in this struggle together. And because we are covered by the blood of Jesus, we can face our failures, we can learn, we can grow, we can stand against opposition with confidence because our allegiance is to King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. And this is why every week we root ourselves in the source of our citizenship by calling our minds and our senses back to the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, he blessed it, thanked God for it, and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Now, after the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. You hear that? What makes you safe with God? What secures your citizenships? You can never be deported, right? Because you can't unshed the blood of Jesus, which means even when you're even when you've been a total idiot and you said what you shouldn't have said on Facebook, even when you were totally wrong on an issue and you feel so awful about it, even then you are held safe by Jesus. And one of the easiest ways you learn to believe that's true is when you are wrong, you admit it, you acknowledge it, and you own it to somebody. You live as though you are safe. You can be curious. You can be open because the body of Christ was given for you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. So here's what we're going to do. You should have grabbed a little communion cup when you came in. If you didn't, when I pray, there's some in a basket on the back. If you would rather not reach into a basket, you can go back out there and grab it off the table. I'll pray for us. The musicians will play. And this is an opportunity to remind ourselves that we are safe. If what that little cup represents is true, you can put your guard down and listen. You can learn, you can change, and most of all, you can be a part of a story that is greater than any other story. That is the kingdom of God breaking into the world and making all things new. I will pray for us, we'll sing another song, and then Pastor Stephen's going to come. We're going to dismiss by rows out into the parking lot. You'll see there's a giving box out there. We give as a response to God's grace to us. So if you want to give that way, you can on your way out. I will pray for us again, and then we can experience the presence of God anew as we remember his life given for us, his blood shed for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.